Welcome to Pod Academy. This is the fourth of the Houston Film Lectures, a series of lectures given to students at the National University of Ireland's Houston School of Film and Digital Media in Galway. The lecture series features leading film directors, writers, producers, cinematographers and academics. Laura Mulvey, the British film theorist and filmmaker, who is currently Professor of Film and Media Studies at Birkbeck, University of London, gives this fourth lecture. She analyzes the relationship between stillness and the moving image in cinema, a strand of film theory that she studied in depth in her latest book, Death 24 Frames a Second. Laura Mulvey uses Rosalind's film, Journey to Italy, to talk about the representation of time in film and how everyday technology, such as video and digital media, can change the way of seeing movies. Because I'm generally identified with the 1973 Physical Pleasure article, I decided that I would just kind of place myself at the beginning of this talk and try and indicate just in a quick paragraph how my thought is changing. And also this comes out of new work that I've been doing and a book that was published very recently, which is called Death 24 Times a Second, Stillness in the Moving Image. And that is running behind the talk that I'm going to give today. And Rod asked me to bring in a movie that we both love very much and that also I've written about in my book, which is Roberto Rossellini's 1952 film, Journey to Italy, in Italia. So what I've done is tried to kind of locate some of the things that I've been thinking about recently, but also then try and illustrate them more through uh, talking and thinking about Journey to Italy. Now, I want to start with this question of shift in, in interest, because when I first started to write about the cinema, it was 1972-3, and at that time, films were all watched in darkened rooms, projected at 24 frames a second or thereabouts, and only professionals or people like you had access to flatbed editing tables that broke down the speed necessary for creating the illusion of natural movement that we associate with film. Now, as we all know today, uh, the ways of consuming film have multiplied enormously and the regulation of its speed has been widely extended. Now, then, in those days, in the 70s, I was concerned with, particularly with the eroticization of the female figure, particularly Hollywood's use of the female star, But now, I'm more interested in the ways in which time is represented in cinema and how that representation of time can be discovered in the relationship between movement and stillness, what happens when you use our everyday technology to still the film. So, between that then, the early 70s, and now, stands an absolutely obvious by now and everyday fact that video and digital media have opened up new ways of seeing old movies. And so this question of a relationship between how we see now and uh, the past is really kind of running through uh, my thoughts this afternoon. Um, Now, this question of time and 
the, the kind of crisis of temporality that was overtaking cinema became very kind of acute, not only to me, but to everybody, uh, when, in 1995, when the cinema hit its centenary, when the cinema actually had its, celebrated its 100th birthday. And at that moment like that, uh, cinema began to show its age. It seemed to feel its age. And around that time, uh, not only um, film theorists, but anybody, journalists, uh, ordinary people, everybody, started to talk about the question of the death of cinema. Uh, was cinema <coughs> dying? What was, did cinema have a, uh, a future? And it was, some, it was that kind of sudden aging, kind of crumpling of the cinema um, that, uh, that seemed to me to demand certain kind of thought and kind of return uh, uh, to the cinema itself. And also at the same time, um, it was clear to conservationists, archivists, uh, that celluloid itself was not a stable medium uh, and that it, decay was an inherent part of its uh, physical makeup. And uh, the um, writer and filmmaker Chris Pettit says in his video, Negative Space, uh, this very evocative thing, cinema is becoming increasingly about what is past. It becomes a mausoleum as much as a palace of dreams. And all these things seem to come together, uh, aging uh, uh, the cinema. But at the same time, um, or two years subsequently, uh, after 1995, uh, in 1997, uh, films, old films began to be marketed on a digital format. And although we've been seeing films on uh, video, uh, this seemed to be the beginning, opening of a new era. So that resonance of ageing and of death that was associated with the cinema's centenary coincided with the arrival of a new technology which seemed to create a divide between the old and the new, the old celluloid, the new digital, and so on. But on the other hand, it also provided an opportunity to look back, the films shown on digital, an opportunity to look back uh, to that before in the light of now. So the aesthetics of the past could begin to meet the aesthetics of the present. And bringing, um, I would like to argue, new life uh, to cinema and to its history. But this new life also completely transforms the way in which films are consumed and also, of course, uh, to, uh, to see the oldness in them through the new technology involves a kind of detour out of celluloid into this new uh, medium. But at the same time, this return to the past through the cinema has enabled a new kind of spectatorship. So to return to and repeat a specific film fragment involves a return repetition that involves interrupting the flow of film. So uh, this involves delaying its progress. And what I became interested in was the concept of delay, how, what happens when you delay a film that was actually devised and designed to flow on celluloid at 24 frames a second with the narrative line carrying you kind of inexorably from the beginning through to the, uh, to the end. So to see cinema through delay is to discover uh, ways of seeing and thinking about cinema that have always been there, but to some extent been overlooked 
and come much more into visibility, or to me at any rate, now. And I just wanted to start off by showing, uh, giving an example of the way I was thinking about delaying cinema and uh, the relationship between the film as still frame and the still film as illusion of movement was certainly not something that emerges from our new technologies, but is something that filmmakers have been thinking about for a very long time. So here we go back to uh, 1928, uh, Werthoff, Tiger Werthoff's man in camera, um, and throughout the, and in this particular sequence in the film, uh, is, was very striking to me as a sequence I went back to over and over again, because it really does bring up this kind of question of the basic paradox of cinema, that it's out of, still out of, the series of still frames. And what's very um, revealing here is that as you move into the editing room, which we're going to in a moment, you shift from freeze frame, which is what made the first effect of the, on the horse, uh, to the sense of uh, the frame within the strip of film. And then as the editing starts, the stillness begins to come to life again. Um, so, that, uh, so my point really is quite simply that um, although I knew this film very well, uh, this particular sequence, which actually plays on the relationship between movement, uh, stillness, the illusion of movement emerging out of the uh, flow of frames, was something that I hadn't actually focused on before until the kind of pr- present uh, new climate of thinking about the pause and the freeze frame that you could get through this detour into new technology. Right, now I want to go on to um, Roberto Rossellini's Viaggio in Italia, Journey to Italy, uh, released in 1953, uh, which is back to another moment of uh, transition. I mean, when I say another, I mean similar, perhaps, to the moment of the late 1920s, uh, to a transitional moment in film history, um, a crisis of the cinema emerging out of neorealism in Italy after the war, and then going on to the other new waves uh, of the 1960s. But here, what I'm interested in is not only Rossellini's fascination uh, with the relationship between the animate, the inanimate, the still, the moving, the living, and the dead, but here, perhaps more, the way that he uh, uses, the way that he actually interrupts narrative, uh, interrupts the flow of his movie, uh, in order to um, take us into a meditation, a thought, thought process of thought uh, on uh, the, these various kinds of th- things that interest him that I'll come back to uh, in, in a minute. Um, now, uh, this film was made in Naples, and in many ways it only could have been made in uh, Naples, and it reflects Rossellini's fascination Uh, with the environs of the area, and particularly uh, with Pompeii, you know, the city that was buried in the um, AD 78 or 79 volcano that buried Herculaneum and Pompeii under a mass of of lava. And Ingrid Bergman, um, who had been married to Rossellini, and their marriage was actually coming to an end during the period of making the film, uh, in a much later interview she said... Uh, 
Rossellini adored Pompeii. He knew everything about it. He was only looking for a story into which he could put Pompeii and the museums and Naples and all that Naples stands for, which he was always fascinated with. So these places that uh, he chose were, um, were, were chosen for their associations um, with Rossellini's kind of idiosyncratic, kind of eccentric commentary on the cinema, um, its uh, reality, uh, not so much its realism in this case, its reality, but also this kind of uncanniness of the way in which it has an ability to preserve life. Um, towards the end of the film, uh, there's a sequence that actually takes place in the excavations uh, in, uh, in Pompeii, when the film's protagonists were an English middle class, uh, well, more than middle class, well-to-do, they're drive, driving around Naples in a Bentley, uh, an English couple called Alex and Catherine Joyce, Joyce kind of somewhat significantly, uh, and they're played by uh, George Sanders and Ingrid Bergman. Do any of you still know George Sanders? Does the name ring a bell? Yes, that he is, that's right. And uh, the story of how these two people came to be acting in the movie I think is in itself quite strange, but we can perhaps talk about that later if there's time. Anyway, they're taken to witness an excavation in Pompeii and Rossellini was in touch with the, uh, uh, the works and had been, was, uh, was going to be informed whenever anything spectacular was to be revealed. And they used to pour plaster into an empty, when they found that there was going to be a kind of empty space in the lava, the plaster would then uh, go solid and they would gradually take away what the uh, exterior and find whatever it was that was hidden underneath. And in this sequence, uh, two figures are uncovered. This sequence has been seen as a kind of metaphor uh, for the way in which uh, the photographic and the celluloid medium can actually kind of capture uh, a moment of life and then hold it in suspended animation uh, as an inanimate form, as it were, henceforth. And Raymond Belour, the French theorist, has said about this particular f uh, sequence, there emerges the form of a couple clasped in an embrace as a picture appears in a developer. Thus, a photograph is formed from the real itself. And he's suggesting these plaster casts formed from the imprint left by an original object are, like photographs, kind of indexical uh, imprints of uh, the uh, outside uh, original referent. Pompeii uh, also, since the 18th century, um, had an enormous fascination for um, intellectuals, artists, writers, uh, particularly perhaps in the kind of post-Enlightenment period. And um, a historian who's written about this fascination in Pompeii uh, has said, Pompeii was a locus for the literary and artistic uncanny for much of the 19th century. L'étrange, l'inquietant, das un unheimliche. Uh, the uncanny all found their natural place in stories that centred on the idea of history suspended, the dream come to life, the past restored to the present. The special characteristic of this retrospective vision was the unsettling merging of past 
and present. That's uh, Anthony Vidler writing on the uncanny. Oh, I just want to say that this was 1952. They'd only just restarted the excavations after the war. It was the first wave of excavations since the war. So this idea of history suspended and the dream come to life, the past restored to the present, these images that were evoked by the excavated town might also be used to describe the cinema's ability to confuse time. And as people and history recede into the past, the traces that they leave on the world mark their absence, the impossibility of regaining time, but also bear witness to the reality of their once-upon-a-time presence. So with the cinema, the past is preserved in the full appearance of its reality. So in this Pompeii sequence filmed in 1952, uh, we have uh, not only our Hollywood stars, but we also have the anonymous workman, we have the narrator, as another layer of fossilised history superimposed on the fossilised remains excavated from uh, um, the late in 100 AD. So those alive on the scene then are as fossilised in their screen image now as the plaster casts of the Pompeian uh, couple. Um, now, I want to go on um, and talk a bit more um, about the way in which Rossellini disrupts the idea of narrative drive with what I think of as narrative delay. So just as I was talking about the delay of stopping a film, as uh, Vertov did in 1928, here I'm thinking about the ways in which Rossellini is, as it were, delaying the natural uh, drive ahead of the story. The film book begins with the, the Joyce's, uh, uh, George Sanders and Ingrid Bergman, driving their Bentley through the Italian countryside on their way to uh, Italy. And there's a moment when a car going along the country road is halted and stopped by a little kind of uh, herd of um, cattle or buffalo that kind of stopped the progress of the Bentley. And it seems to me that that's a kind of image of that kind of bumping in to some kind of intractable uh, object that is a, an image for what happens to the drive forward that's there, metaphorically represented by the forward drive of the Bentley as it's stopped by the herd of cattle. And it also represents the way in which a rather complacent English couple uh, are um, also kind of stopped in their tracks, as it were, by the encounter with southern Italy and with, and with Naples. So within the fiction, the characters of Alex and Catherine Joyce, played by Ingrid Bergman and George Sanders, create an opposition between two kinds of cinema. Um, Catherine carves out a space for a pause, a stop, a space for reflection and a journey into the past, while Alex is impatient always to drive the action forward. So while Catherine allows the plot to wander, Alex is always trying to keep it on track with an ordered sense of movement and event. So these divergent lines uh, move along gender lines with masculinity and its anxieties identified with a kind of conventional action-driven narrative 
and femininity with a space, a stop in cinema that would enable Rossellini's space for reflection, an essay, the essay aspect of his film. And I did want to show um, um, George Sanders's, it's a, a, a fantastic Sanders sequence, to show the way that he's always restless. This is just his restlessness with the siesta. Anyway, uh, that's a kind of encapsulated, a kind of mini-example of how Alex can't keep still. He's always restless. He's trying to move, and how he bumps into obstacles, uh, uh, which in this case is the unfortunate maid trying to have her, her, uh, her siesta. It's the next sequence where they talk about uh, Ingrid Bergman talks about her memories, which is actually a, a retelling of the uh, James Joyce story, The Dead, um, which also then brings in the theme of the ghost, the once upon a time lover who's now dead, who's then going to kind of haunt their relationship and um, generate kind of huge uh, jealousy in, uh, in Alex's kind of ghost that's uh, haunting them. Um, so what I, I want to, to uh, suggest here is that this um, growing distance between Alex and Catherine uh, uh, is actually represents two possible ways in which narrative can develop. Um, Alex is addicted, as it were, to the movement of narrative, to its drive forward, and the f- uh, film is constantly... Uh, um, frustrating him and at one point it offers him the possibility of a flirtation and he goes off to Capri to follow a a young woman who he fancies but once again in this meandering plot he loses out and uh, Marie, the girl, just quite simply rejects him and he has to kind of go back. One to kind of roughly adapt Gilles Deleuze's movement image and time image, um, this sense of these two divergent uh, kinds of storytelling, which it seems to me that long before Deleuze ever thought of it, Rossellini is kind of enacting uh, these two um, different kinds of storytelling. But um, Deleuze uh, did put a lot of emphasis on Rossellini's films, uh, and particularly uh, uh, in in this period, uh, as a moment when uh, uh, the cinema was in a a crisis, uh, the cinema of action and of movement was in a crisis. And um, Dean Roderick says... Uh, for Deleuze, neorealism was a crisis uh, in the cinema, especially Rossellini's films, Germania, Anno Zero, Stromboli, Viaggio in Italia. Narrative situations appear where reality is represented as lacunary, as empty. Linear actions dissolve into chance strolls. Events occur where it's no longer possible to act or react. The linking of the motor drive is no longer activated by action. Um, Space uh, changes becoming disconnected or empty space. Acts of seeing or hearing replace the linking of images through motor actions. Pure description replaces referential and and that's uh, sorry that's characteristically dense. As I read it out, I thought there's a bit too much going on there. But put in simple terms, all he's saying is that in uh, the, the Rossellini film, 
uh, that kind of drive of, na- of narrative that's based around action and movement of narrative force, generally kind of driven by a kind of action uh, hero, uh, is coming to a halt, is stumbling. And out of that, some other kind of cinema is developing around kind of seeing uh, in emptiness, in empty spaces. Uh, and he particularly associated this with uh, the neo-realist uh, dwelling on the ruins, uh, on ruins after the war. And I think this sense of dwelling on the past comes back also uh, dissociated immediately from the aftermath of the war and going into a much more abstract context. Uh, here. And we see this uh, as Catherine Ingrid Bergman uh, becomes the kind of leader, the movie's leader, uh, a guide taking us into spaces which have nothing to do with the narrative and are actually to do with Rossellini's thoughts uh, on um, representation and I would argue particularly on movement and stillness. So now we can have Ingrid in the Museo Archaeological she, she's always going off on her little sightseeing expeditions and here you know, going through this sequence you know, if you do pause on the statues you do get the sense of kind of suspending uh, motion that uh, the um, style of, um, it's, it's, kind of it's, it's Roman copies of uh, Greek uh, uh, statues all of which had this kind of interest in capturing uh, movement suspended, which of course takes one very um, immediately to uh, kind of ideas of photography of Cartier-Bresson, um, the kind of privilege, was it the privilege moment or the decisive moment? Uh, so there's a kind of connection there through uh, Bazin's interest in, um, in Rossellini as well. After this journey into the archaeological museum, the, uh, Catherine then takes the film. Uh, her relationship with Alex is kind of deter- their relationship is deteriorating. They're going their separate w- ways, and she takes us you know, from the archaeological museum into her tourist trips. Uh, and the next one um, is to uh, Kumai, a kind of very very ancient uh, sacred site which had been sacred throughout the centuries and uh, again there's a kind of guide who takes her through uh, from from pre-Greek times to early Christian times uh, through to the landings of the British army uh, in the the last war so you get this kind of layering of uh, time here which is built like a palimpsest one on top of the other and also as he walks through the shrine he shouts and shows that there's an echo that kind of reverberates through which once again kind of keeps the the walls kind of make this sound kind of reverberate with another kind of almost artificial life but the final one which is actually probably um, uh, to my mind the most significant is when they go to uh, what's called the little, the Phlegraean fields, the little Vesuvius, where she's shown a kind of volcanic material, and she says, ah, oh, this was like, 90, uh, like uh, uh, 79. Um, and here, what the camera is interested in is the way that volcanic activity uh, brings uh, the um, immaterial, immaterial rock, uh, the volcanic matter, into movement, 
which becomes like this kind of uncanny force, as it were, uh, the inanimate becoming animated. So there again you see a kind of metaphoric relationship to the way in which the inanimate celluloid kind of gives the illusion of uh, animation. Um, and I think throughout the film, Rossellini is kind of constantly leading us back uh, to the volcano and to the place of the volcano uh, in, um, in the culture of uh, Naples. Because in addition to these kinds of, of aesthetic questions that I've been drawing attention to, he was also fascinated by the way that the volcano, the presence of the volcano, uh, had given rise to all kinds of superstitions and cults, not only uh, the uh, kind of semi-pagan Christian cults, but going back right for as long as culture had existed uh, at the on the slopes of the volcano, in which it was always essential to try and keep the spirit of the volcano quiescent when it would always kind of tend to erupt. Um, and Rossellini was very interested in the saint. Uh, who um, uh, the, the main saint of Naples, uh, San Gennaro, and in an interview in 1954, he said, you must remember that Naples is the only place in the world where a miracle takes place on a fixed date, September 19th, the miracle of San Gennaro. And San Gennaro, look out, if the miracle doesn't, doesn't happen, he gets into trouble and dreadful things start to happen. Uh, uh, to my mind, what's so fascinating was that the miracle of San Gennaro was that the blood, the preserved blood, liquefies uh, uh, in the miracle. So, in a sense, it's the opposite of the activity of the volcano. So, whereas the volcano has to keep um, a solid and uh, uh, unliquid, as it were, the blood liquefying seems to kind of act as a charm uh, or kind of sanctified moment against that. So um, what I am trying to emphasize here is that these elements in the movie and in Rossellini's thoughts about the movie were not necessarily so uh, vivid or important to me until I started to think about the way in which uh, he was bringing up these questions kind of metaphorically about the nature of cinema, about its magicalness, and uh, also at the same time for opening up the space to think about this out of George Sanders's, poor George Sanders's frustration and the empty spaces in which the story doesn't uh, really drive ahead. Um, there are a lot of, of, of Questions which I haven't really gone into now about the performances uh, and the way that Rossellini directed this movie, but um, he consistently refused to direct uh, Sanders and Bergman, didn't tell them, didn't give them a script, didn't really tell them what was going on, and so they had never any idea really about what they were doing. As a result, they were kind of thrown back uh, in, on being themselves. So, to a certain extent, you have these rather stilted performances of very, very sophisticated Hollywood stars who are consummate performers, um, absolute perfectionists, being thrown back, not really knowing what to do, and kind of uh, performing themselves performing. And there's this constant sense of kind of the presence of the person kind of coming through their, their attempts at performance. 
And this gives the film a, a, a kind of uh, edge of reality uh, which is quite different from realism. Uh, whereas realism, in a sense, is kind of coherent uh, and um, convincing. This is the kind of edge of the presence of reality which comes from the unconvincingness of uh, performance. But um, and at the end of the film, uh, there's a, a balance, um, a symmetry with the opening. Just as at the beginning, the Bentley had driven along the country road been stopped by the herd of buffalo. Here, at the end, the Bentley is driving along through a little town and it encounters a religious procession. And in the kind of press of the crowd, Alex and Catherine have to get out. And just as they get out, there's a kind of cry of miracle and all the people rush forward, taking them apart. And then as Alex finds Catherine... There's a perfect Hollywood ending. Uh, after all the irritation of the movie, they're suddenly reconciled. They recognize their love for each other, and there's a kind of Hollywood embrace as, as an end. But Rossellini, has, in a sense, he kind of deals with them. That's their end. That's the end of that part of the story. But the camera, in a very, very beautiful, huge crane shot, sweeps away and then follows the crowd as it drifts off home and ends with a little kind of local band uh, and the bugler uh, and then ends with nothing. So you have a kind of tension between, as it were, um, the closure of the film, as it were, the story of the Hollywood stars, but also then recognising even uh, at the end that actually, we might say, life goes on uh, and uh, reality drifts uh, ahead. Um, and this is the kind of continuance of time, the presence of time uh, that's always been associated with Rossellini's uh, cinema. Um, well, I just wanted to finish with a few um, uh, points, uh, going back rather to my remarks at the beginning. So, um, to come back to the question of the way in which uh, the contemporary 21st uh, century spectator can now kind of play with the temporality of uh, film is a way of experiencing uh, the relationship between uh, movement, uh, the f- a forward movement of the cinema, uh, can actually echo uh, the sensation of forward movement of time, um, which is not necessarily just experience with the halting of time, the halting second, but also the presence of uh, sequence in process, this kind of amorphous um, kind of present tense that you experience when seeing kind of time unfold, which is always, when you watch a movie, uh, a now which is always fading into a then. So quite apart from when you hold uh, a, a a moment still, like when Vertov gives us a freeze frame on the white horse as it canters through the streets of Moscow, you then get a sense of kind of the thenness of uh, which is associated with the photograph. But also, as film unfolds, um, now is always moving into then, so that your, the question of time passing is always palpable and, um, uh, and present, and forces, in a sense, one in a sense to think about the relationship between nows and thens. 
Um, and so, in some ways, that stillness, that initial kind of stillness of the frame, uh, is always mo- moving us forward into the succession of 24 frames a second. So that uh, that past moment is always coming into a now, which then kind of goes back into a then. Sorry, this is getting kind of a bit confused. So I'm going to end with just uh, a tribute to uh, Raymond Belour, who I mentioned at the, mo- at the beginning, um, who wrote a, uh, an essay quite a long time ago, I think it was in the 1970s, which was about, in which he comes up with the idea of a pensive spectator. And it seems to me that that idea of the pensive spectator anticipated the kind of thoughtful reflection on the film image that's now possible, a way that we can kind of now see into the screen images and shift them, stretch them, delay them uh, into uh, thinking and reflecting on our different dimensions of temporality. And the oppositions uh, that Raymond Belour talks about, uh, particularly between stillness and movement that, that are opposite but always fused in the movement of, of celluloid um, these attributes of film and photography are now producing new relations with each other and are in, in enabling us to think about uh, stillness and movement in a new kind of way and so we could see how immobility, that still frame, kind of mutate into movement that can then merge again with narrativity and narrative time as a kind of another layer. Uh, and then we can come back again to stillness and the reality of the uh, index. So that we get the sense that time uh, is particularly difficult for the human mind uh, to grasp um, and that it always returns to us uh, in Raymond Belour's phrase brushed by death. Thank you for listening to this podcast which is part of the Port Academy's exclusive series of lectures from the Houston's School of Film and Digital Media. If you have enjoyed this podcast, why not check out our other lectures and interviews on podacademy.org.